And please remain standing for the reading of God's word this morning. And you can open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. The message to the church in Philadelphia. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. This is God's holy word, inspired by the Holy Spirit and given by God for his people. Please give it your full attention. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. You may be seated. We tend to think... That bigger is better and stronger. Maybe the ways of the world or with the ways of the world, that is usually the case. The bigger army usually wins the war. The bigger army, the bigger weapons, they oftentimes win. But we also have weight classes in combat sports because the bigger man in the fight tends to win. The bigger company tends to be more successful in business. With the world, bigger is better. And no one is more prone to this type of mentality than we are. I mean, my goodness, everything is bigger in Texas, right? But is it that way in God's kingdom? No, this is not Necessarily the case in God's kingdom. For instance, the mightiest warrior in the history of Old Testament Israel was a small teenage boy. Yet he defeated Goliath, the giant, and thousands more, countless more. When Gideon was to defeat the Midianites, the Lord continued to reduce his army, taking it From originally 32,000 men down to 300. Yet they defeated the mighty Midianites. Israel itself was a small nation. 
In fact, Moses told them in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7, that it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Yet by the power of God, they defeated the mighty nations in the land of Canaan. Even the kingdom of God in the new covenant is not expected to be big in relation to the rest of the world. Now the kingdom parables that Jesus told certainly teach us that God's kingdom will grow larger and larger. And indeed, she has been growing in size for the gospel is going forth and bearing fruit throughout the earth. However, Jesus affirms that the kingdom of God in relation to the rest of the world will always be in the minority. When he declared that the path to life is narrow and hard and those who find it are few. Jesus further confirms this in Matthew chapter 22 when he tells the parable of the wedding feast. Noting That many are called to the wedding feast, that is, to eternal life, but few are chosen. Beloved, the kingdom of God, as it looks to the world, will always appear small and weak. Its relative smallness is part of what puts off this appearance. Its suffering and tribulation is another aspect of its apparent weakness. And taking all of this into account, there's really a whole lot we can learn from this message to the Philadelphians. The church in Philadelphia was one of only two of the seven churches that did not receive a rebuke from the Lord. Only commendations. Yet verse 8 says that they had but little power. Now, most commentators note that the church's little power had to do with the smallness of their numbers, the smallness of their resources, and in turn, the smallness of their social standing and influence in the Philadelphian community. And so the church at Philadelphia had much, it really has a whole lot, much to teach to the broader church throughout this age. One Dutch Reformed commentator said this, One of the chief characteristics of the church in Philadelphia is undoubtedly expressed in the words of the Savior, Thou hast a little strength. This describes her outward condition in the world. The meaning is that the church was small. In fact, we may undoubtedly say that the church in general, the true church of Jesus Christ, is always of little power if compared with the strength of the world. It is always comparatively small in numbers. It usually is financially poor. It does not count among its numbers the rich and the great of the world. However, when the Lord addresses the church in Philadelphia thus, and remarks that she has but little strength. This refers only to her outward position in the world. It does not describe her spiritual condition. 
Spiritually, he says, the little church in Philadelphia was not weak, but strong indeed. That this is true is evident from the rest of the letter addressed to her. End quote. Beloved, it is absolutely true that though the church may be few, though it may be small, though it may appear weak in the eyes of the world, it nevertheless is strong and mighty in the Lord. Christ makes plain that this was true of the church in Philadelphia in the words that followed. He said, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And then down in verse 10, he says that they have kept his word about patient endurance. And this indicates that they had already been experiencing tribulation by the larger community around them. They probably appeared very weak to that community around them as well. Yet, they were, by the strength of God, patiently enduring through that tribulation and had not denied the name of their Savior, Jesus Christ. Though they were small, by the power of the Lord, they were faithful witnesses to Christ. Faithful witnesses of Christ to the community around them. Now, do we know what kind of tribulation they were experiencing there in Philadelphia? Well, yes, we do have at least a small picture of it in this passage. In verse 9, the Lord speaks of a synagogue of Satan at Philadelphia, made up of those who called themselves Jews, but who were not. And so similar to the church in Smyrna back in chapter 2, the church at Philadelphia was experiencing problems amongst the ethnic Jews in their community. The ethnic unbelieving Jews were known at this time for slandering the Christians when reporting to the Romans and therefore bringing about small bouts of persecution upon the Christians in those early decades of the church, the New Covenant Church. And this certainly would have been part of the tribulation they experienced. But the unbelieving Jews were also attempting to deceive the church in Philadelphia. Hence the Lord says that they say that they are Jews, but who are not, but lie. You see, they had rejected the Messiah and had deceived themselves, first of all, into thinking that they were true Jews. And so they lied to the church in Philadelphia, attempting to deceive them into believing that they were the true Jews and not those who were following after Christ. And this too was part of the tribulation the church underwent there in Philadelphia. Now this type of tribulation that they were particularly facing, is what makes the words of Christ's self-identification so important at the beginning of this message. Christ says in verse 7, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. 
You see, the unbelieving ethnic Jews were claiming that they were the true Jews and that Christians would be excluded from the kingdom of God because of their allegiance to Christ. But Christ, in this message, wants them to know that He and He alone holds the key of David, which means He alone is able to open and shut the doors of the kingdom of God. Now Jesus here is alluding back to a passage in Isaiah chapter 22, which we read earlier in the service. That passage which speaks of Eliakim being called by God to possess the key of the house of David. The key here being the symbol of authority over that kingdom. Well, Jesus here in Revelation chapter 3 assures us that he is the one greater than Eliakim of whom Eliakim was merely a type pointing forward to Christ, the only one who truly possesses the key of David. And this is significant because it informed the church at Philadelphia that the ethnic, unbelieving Jews were not Jews at all, but liars, synagogues of Satan. Christ is the holy and true Jew. And all those who are united to him by faith are also holy and true Jews. They alone will have the doors of the kingdom opened to them by Christ. But to those who deny him and persecute and lie to his people will have the doors of the kingdom shut before them. Now, it's likely that This is why Christ in verse 8 tells the church at Philadelphia that he has set before them an open door that no one is able to shut. Because he is assuring this little church of their eternal life in the kingdom of God through their faith in him. By being in Christ... They can be assured that the doors of the kingdom are opened to them. Now, because the door of the kingdom is opened to them, their witness of Christ to the community will be empowered. Therefore, Jesus says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. And they will learn that I have loved you. You see, Christ is telling them here that their witness amongst the unbelieving ethnic Jews is going to be powerful and effective. Because Christ has opened with the key of David, the door to the new Jerusalem for this little church in Philadelphia... They then have the authority to proclaim that opened door to the community. And it's interesting how Christ asserts that this will happen. He actually draws upon several Old Testament passages, again, from the book of Isaiah. For instance, and you can write some of these down, for we will only look at one of them. But Jesus is drawing upon Isaiah 45, verse 14. 
chapter 49, verse 23, and also chapter 60, verse 14. Now, of those passages, let me read the last one, Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 14, which says, The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Okay, so this verse together with those other verses, all refer to Gentiles in the last times who, these Gentiles who initially afflicted Israel, but who will later in the end times bow down at Israel's feet to proclaim that their God is the true and living God. So these are, Isianic passages are prophesying of a time when many Gentiles will convert and come to faith. And so when Jesus makes this promise to the church in Philadelphia, he's actually doing some profound things. Two things particularly. First, he is providing a true definition of what it means to be a Jew. It's not one who is born biologically from the seed of Abraham. But the true Jew is one who is united by faith to Christ, who was himself the promised seed of Abraham. And so the church, whether Jew or Gentile, is now the Israel of God. And that's why Jesus says that the Jews in Philadelphia, those who are unbelievers, that they are not actually Jews, but a synagogue of Satan. So that's number one. But secondly, he is indicating that through the witness of the true Jews, that is, the believers there in Philadelphia, many ethnic Jews were going to be converted as the church shared with them the gospel of Christ, who alone has the key of David. Now after this, Christ says in verse 10, that because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> some have suggested here that Jesus is referring to the church in Philadelphia being removed from any further tribulation. Some have so that this is even a promise to remove all faithful Christians from tribulation through what they call the rapture. Well, we will have the opportunity in the future, Lord, helping us to demonstrate the unsoundness of that teaching. But for now, we shall simply say that the hour of trial that Jesus is referring to here is the final judgment. And we know this because he says it is coming upon the whole earth to try those who dwell on the earth. And so what we have here is a universal trial, which is to try those who dwell upon the earth. Now, that last phrase there, those who dwell on the earth, that becomes a technical term in Revelation referring to idolaters, unbelievers. 
could also be translated earth dwellers. The earth dwellers are idolaters and unbelievers who follow the beast. For example, in chapter 17, verse 8, we read, The dwellers on earth, there it is, the earth dwellers, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast. And so what Christ is promising the Philadelphians is that they will be kept, perhaps a better word, they will be guarded from a condemning verdict at the final judgment since by their faith in Christ they have kept his word about patient endurance. The earth dwellers will not be guarded from this. But those who trust in Christ will be guarded from that trial. In fact, the following verse proves as much when it says, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. You see, the the tribulation in the present life of that church uh, was still to come. There were still forthcoming trials and tribulations for them. So it's not that they were being removed. In fact, we see that there was potential for their crowns, that is the crown of life, to be seized from them. For them to relinquish it. Which of course would only prove that they never had true faith to begin with. Yet this... The Lord uses as a warning to them, a warning to this church, a call for them to diligently look to Christ who can help them through further tribulation. However, this warning did not come without encouragement. He says to them, I am coming soon. And here I don't think that Jesus is referring to the final coming at this point. Here he is referring to visiting this church to help them in the midst of trial and tribulation. Jesus actually tells several of the churches. We've seen it already in the messages to these churches. He he says that he will come, that he will visit this church. Sometimes it's by way of threat. If you don't repent, I'm coming. I'm coming to bring a temporary judgment. But here, here Jesus is encouraging encouraging them, letting them know that he is going to be present with them. He is going to come and aid them in their time of sufferings and tribulations. And so we see then that this church still had yet to conquer. We are all conquerors in Christ, but yet we are called to continue to conquer, to overcome the tribulation that we face in this world. Well, they still needed to overcome further tribulations that lay ahead of them. And to the one who would conquer, Christ promised... I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And the symbolism 
is that God's people are living stones being built up into a dwelling place of God. Jesus says he will make him a pillar in that temple because pillars are permanent fixtures. So that no one who conquers will go out of it. And so the picture here is that God's dwelling place will be among them. And this is proven from the fact that the name of God, the name of the city of God, and the name of Christ will be written on those who conquer. Remember that Isaiah 60 passage I read just a moment ago, where the afflictors would call Israel what? They would bow down before them and and say that they are the city of God. You see, the name of that city is written upon us. Revelation chapter 21 speaks of that city, calling it the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from God. And then God's dwelling place, it says, will be with man and he will be their God and they will be his people. For eternity. The name of that city. Is written upon those who conquer. Who overcome. Even more. God's own name. And the name of Christ. Will be written upon them. For they are God's. And nothing will ever separate them. From the communion. That they have with him. They will be like a pillar. Fixed. Upon a temple. God will be there. God's dwelling place will be with man and no one shall be removed from it. Now, if we are to have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us this morning, then what shall we be hearing from this message to the church in Philadelphia? Well, first... Though the church today, and especially the Reformed church today, be small and perceivably weak according to the world, we need to understand that we are actually very strong. Strong only in the Lord. You see, no matter how bad persecution may get, or how bad the false prophet attempts to deceive us, Or how seductive the world becomes. Even when the final antichrist appears. The church will be strong. Because the victory, beloved, has already been won. We do not have to be outwardly strong. To be truly strong. That is the way the world thinks. But it is not the way the church thinks. Because it is not what the Bible teaches. The church in Philadelphia was small and perceivably weak. But it was strong in the Lord. It was going to proclaim the open door. And that was going to be effectual amongst many of the ethnic Jews. Not because the church itself on its own was strong. But because... They looked to the one who holds the key to the door of the kingdom of God. As we will see throughout the book of Revelation, and just as we've seen in the past few weeks, going through Luke chapter 21, the tribulation spans throughout this whole age. 
and it will be worse at the end. The church will likely appear smaller right before the end than it has at any point throughout this age. But beloved, that may be the appearance from the world. But she will be as strong as ever in the Lord. Because Christ has already won the victory. And let me ask you, how did he win that victory? The victory of our redemption. How did he win it? Was it through any kind of outward strength? No. Our salvation came through what the world would view as weakness. It came through death and at that death on a cross. To the world, foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Our gospel seems weak to the world, but in that supposed weakness came our victory. That's the gospel. And that's what we are to live out now in the church, the effects of the gospel today. I'm currently reading a book that takes a very different perspective on the end times from what I've been preaching. And in that book, the author calls my view of the end times an eschatology of defeat. Eschatology simply means the study of the end times. And so he calls it an eschatology of defeat. Why does he call it that? Well, because to live in an age of trial and tribulation, persecution and deception, and for those things to get progressively worse for the church before the end is only seen to him as an eschatology of defeat. Now, that author is now currently deceased. But if I were to have talked with him while he lived, I would have liked to have asked him if he believed the ministry of Christ to be a ministry of defeat. Things got progressively worse for Christ until eventually he was put to death. Is that a ministry of defeat? It certainly was not. Because in dying, Christ was victorious. In dying, Christ defeated Satan, sin, and the world. The gospel is a gospel of power in weakness. And so it will be with the church until Christ returns. The scripture could not be more clear on this. Especially when it teaches in the New Testament that Christians are being conformed to their Savior by the sufferings of Christ. By sharing in the sufferings of Christ. This age is filled with suffering by the hands of unbelievers through persecution by deception, by temptation. My goodness, Paul's apostolic authority was even in question to the Corinthians because his ministry appeared weak by all outward and worldly standards. Yet the Lord told him in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 that his power was made perfect in Paul's weakness. So Paul, speaking to the Corinthians in the following verses, states that I will therefore boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses 
so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Jesus said that in this world you will have tribulation. And because of this fact, the book of Revelation is calling us, beloved, to be faithful witnesses. To hold fast to what we have and to not let the trials we face lead us to deny his name. It is in our tribulation and our outward weakness that we are empowered to witness to the fallen world. Beloved, the more the Israelites were oppressed by the Egyptians, the more they multiplied. Exodus 1.12 When the true believing Israelites were scattered in the exile, faith in the true God spread unto the nations. That's why we hear about the God-fearers amongst the Gentiles in the New Testament. And when the first century church was persecuted, they fled to other lands and spread the gospel to other places. Now some may call this a ministry or a mission of defeat, but that's only if they are looking at it with worldly rather than with spiritual eyes. Beloved, recently we've been studying through the history of our denomination, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And it's no surprise to any of us that it's a rather small Kind of measly church. Even this congregation, Christ's Covenant Presbyterian Church, is a small congregation. But beloved, so long as we abide in Christ, we are strong. Two OPC elders in a book they wrote titled Fighting the Good Fight, A Brief History of the OPC, Speak of the size and strength of the denomination, stating, The denomination is best compared to a small, but nevertheless firm presence in American Christianity. Easily overlooked, but when confronted, not easily ignored. As historian Mark Knoll, who compared the OPC to the pea beneath the mattress, said at the celebration of the church's 50th anniversary, the denomination is very small. But it is rock hard and undeniably there. While some may want to think the OPC as a jewel of great price hidden away by the forces of darkness, Noel cautioned that Balaam's ass may make for a better comparison. The denomination has not sold its soul to theological fashion or to the allure of wealth, power, and influence. Rather, like Balaam's ass, though a thing of naught, In the humblest of all God's creatures, it has seen the angel of God and tried to heed his word. End quote. I think that's a pretty good way to think not only of the OPC, but about the true church throughout the world. But let me leave you with the words of one other church historian speaking again about the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Which I think brings this message home to each one of us. Not just collectively, but also even individually in our lives together 
as the church. In contrast to what some may call an eschatology of defeat, this author speaks of our denomination stating, Meanwhile, continuing beneath our burden, we progress slowly. Still our growth is steady. But the amazing thing, given our cultural position, is that we grow at all. Our purpose is not success. It is not even survival. But the giving up of our lives in service to our great God and in imitation of our Savior. To him be all praise and glory now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Our most gracious God, we thank you for being our rock in our place of refuge. For on our own, it is true, we are weak. But yet, O oh God, we are strong. Because by faith we are united to him who has overcome the world. Lord, we thank you that you have also given to us the word. The word of Holy Scripture that we might know it and proclaim it. For in it we find everlasting truth. And it makes us strong. Uniting us to Christ. Pointing us to Christ. That by faith we might hold to him. We pray, O oh God, that we would be faithful witnesses. In our families. In our different places of occupation. In our neighborhoods. And indeed, wherever we go, that many might come and recognize that the church is, that, that the Lord has placed his love upon the church. And it was for her for which he died. We pray these things in Jesus' most holy name. Amen.